0: if you would, to just, let's have a moment of silent prayer, and I just want to ask you, if you would talk to the Lord and just ask Him what He has for you during this time, that He would minister to your needs and to those around you, and to um, not make this a wasted time for you, but a profitable time, okay? Amen. Today we're talking about uh, the marks of a maturing disciple. A couple of days ago, we talked about the Discipler, and today we'll talk about the person who's on the other end of that, the one who's being Discipled. Um, Do you ask yourself the question, why do we make disciples? Why should I be disciples? Why are we doing this anyway? And I want to give you two reasons. One's a theological reason, and one's a practical reason. Number one, theologically, Scripture commands us to do that. Remember Matthew 28 that we looked at a couple of days ago? Matthew 28 and verses 19 and 20. It says that as we're going out into all the world, we are commanded to make disciples. And then we talked about that there are two parts to that. That first of all, it says that we're baptizing people, which means that we're sharing Christ with them and we're leading them to the Lord so that they're baptized in his name. And the second part of that is that we're teaching them to observe everything that Christ commanded. Which means that we're building them to maturity. We're not just giving them information, but we're teaching others in order that they could apply that information and that their lives change and glorify the Lord. Are you the kind of person that when you are in your quiet time or in your studies as you're studying the Scripture, when you come across things that relate to you and it says you should be doing this kind of person, this kind of thing, you should be encouraging other people? Do you just automatically, in your time with the Lord, say, Lord, I haven't been real encouraging to other people and to people around me this week. Lord, I want to change. I want to grow in that area. Would you take me out this next week, Lord, and remind me constantly that I could be an encourager to other people? Do you just respond to Scripture like that? So with a real desire to be obedient. Some time ago, I was teaching a class in our Lagos program over at Grace Community Church, and we talked during the afternoon. We were talking about relationships and about communication, and we talked about... Um, being a real negative person and about complaining and just always, what's your speech like? What's your communication like to other people? And a girl who was in that um, class that year that I was personally kind of discipling and spending time with her once a week was in that class. And I remember she said something about, oh, this is so convicting. She said, I just spent half an hour with one of the other secretaries over in the church just pouring out every negative thing I could think of and complaining about everything that's wrong around here and everything I didn't like. And it was just kind of, ugh. And it was about an hour later that she came back for her personal time with me. And she said, okay, at least I feel a little bit better about things now. I had to leave your class and go directly to that woman and tell, and just ask her forgiveness and tell her that I had just totally blown it. And everything I had said was negative and complaining, and that's not how, you, how the Lord wants me to be. And you know what? I was so excited about that girl. It's so exciting to work with somebody who's that sensitive to the Lord's leading. And to the message that's in Scripture, that when she read it and she heard it, within an hour's time, she had gone out and done something about that. Now, you may say, well, I can't within an hour's time go out and get somebody to disciple me. And and for most people, that would probably be true, unless you've been thinking about it for a long time and praying about it and just been kind of trying to work up the courage to ask somebody that you've already been thinking and praying about. And so maybe that means for some of you that you need to do that within an hour's time. Uh, but maybe for most of us, what it means is that I need to get serious about praying about this and about looking around and about thinking about somebody that I would want to ask to do that for me. The second reason, the practical reason, is because I believe that Scripture teaches that growth takes place in relationships or it's demonstrated in relationships. Do you ever think about that? To lock yourself in a closet and study Scripture, you could learn a lot of information but you know what? I'm not sure how much, even after a long period of time, of somebody literally in a closet with no relationships at all studying Scripture, hopefully there would be some kind of growth, but it's not going to be demonstrated until those people are in relationship with somebody else. And there's a tendency for all of us when relationships get painful or uncomfortable, and the first thing we want to do is to flee and to escape those relationships. But the exciting thing is that when relationships get painful and they get uncomfortable, usually if we'll stay in there with it, it's an incredible opportunity for growth for us, if we're willing to handle it in the right way and to stay with it. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's part of what's going on with us when we're in discipleship, is we're in relationships in the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 and verses 15 and 16, if you have your Bible sign, you turn there with me for a minute. Ephesians 4, verse 15. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes what? The growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The growth is taking place, but it's largely taking place in the body, in the context of the body of Christ, in the context of relationships that we have with each other. That's the test of our growth, is how we relate to other people. That's where the motivation for the growth comes from. That's where the growth is taking place and where it's manifested, in those relationships, in the body of Christ. There are no hermits in the body of Christ. I used to, when when I was much younger and really struggling with relationships and trying to build friendships and learning what it meant to relate to others, I used to think it would just be wonderful to be able to get a library of good books and go off on a mountain somewhere and spend the rest of my life reading. Because reading was an escape for me, I think, as I look back on it. I just became an avid reader, and I think there were times... Um, when I was just really unhappy and my life didn't seem to be working very well and I didn't feel very loved and accepted by other people. But I could go read a wonderful book and escape from my everyday circumstances and the fact that I wasn't growing very well at that time in relationships with other people. A few years ago, I got to know a girl who had come to um, our church, and this was before I came to Grace Community Church. But she had come from a really rough and difficult background, and she appeared for a period of time to be converted to Christ, and there appeared for a time to be a dramatic change in her life. And um, all of the people who were at our church were kind of in awe of her. It was just she seemed to be able to, you know, to do all sorts of things really great. She seemed to have this atmosphere of spirituality about her, and, and people just looked at her in awe. But it was always interesting to me that she had come from that kind of background of being kind of a hermit and a loner and being real independent and not having good, healthy relationships with other people. And even in appearing to be a Christian for a period of time, that was probably the biggest struggle for her, is that she refused to get involved in close, intimate relationships. Prior to that, probably had to do a lot with her ideas about herself and her fears about what people would find out and that they wouldn't like her. And because she had some, a sinful past that I think she was trying to hide at the time, and she felt like if other people got to really know some of the things she had dealt with and some of the things that she had struggled with, that they would reject her. And so she didn't ever want to get too close to anybody. But over a period of time, she shared a little bit at a time with me about some of the things that had gone on. And I tried to reach out to her and I tried to minister to her and there were times that I spent with her trying to be an encouragement. I think the loneliest Thanksgiving I ever spent in my life was the day that I spent with her when she had, uh, I think she had moved to Colorado by that time and had come back to visit for a week or so. And I was, again, trying to encourage her because she was really struggling. And we had, I think it was at least three invitations to different people's homes for big turkey dinners and fellowship with friends. And, you know, I wanted to go to all three places. I probably would have planned my day to just, you know, have a progressive Thanksgiving dinner all day long. I just loved the people at all three of these places. And the thought of being invited, you know, for you know a fireplace and a warm, cozy room and friends that I dearly loved and to miss out on that would have been really hard. But you know what? She would not go to any one of those three places. There was just no way. She, There was no way she was gonna go with me. And I felt like the, the choice I had was to go off and leave her to spend the day entirely by herself, which was what she was gonna do, or else stay and try to um, befriend her and to help her. So I can remember having Thanksgiving dinner at Dupar's Restaurant at Farmer's Market, having a roast beef and cheese sandwich for Thanksgiving and thinking, you know, where are my friends and where's the fireplace and where's the turkey and, you know, all this fellowship with friends but she didn't want to have any part of it. And you know, her life went on like that for two or three years. And then because, and I think largely because she would not open up and really share herself and let people minister to her deep on the inside in terms of who she really was, she found herself um, being tempted and getting back into her old lifestyle, which happened to be homosexuality. That was one of the things that she was struggling with over a period of time. And the next thing I knew, she had gone back and gotten involved with somebody again. And a period of time after that, just one of the saddest days of my whole life was the day that she showed up on my doorstep, having driven all the way from Colorado, and she showed up on my doorstep in West Hollywood with a girl with her I'd never seen before in my life, saying, "Um, next month I'm going to go through with a marriage to this girl. And I want your blessing, but I know that I won't get it. And I wish you would come to the wedding, but I know that you won't. So I drove all the way here for you to meet this girl because I wanted to tell you what I'm doing. And I also know that because I'm still claiming to be a Christian at this point and because um, I know how you're going to have to react to that and I know that our fellowship is over and I'm not going to be able to have the kind of friendship with you that I've had and to depend on your support for me. But I am going to go through with this because I think it will make me happy. And I actually got a, a wedding invitation in the mail. At some point later on with a nice little picture on the front. It was just the most, I have it filed away somewhere that several, every few years I pull it out and look at it to see what sin can do to people. It was just the most bizarre thing to look at that invitation. And obviously there's a lot more going on with somebody like that. But I really do believe, as I've looked back on that through the years and thought a lot about it and what happened to that girl, I think there was a lot involved in the fact that she was not willing to even try to build relationships. That she was not willing to ever try to open up and share herself and to share a weakness and to really want to be in relationships with people that could help her grow. She wanted to be a hermit. And she wanted to be a loner. And she wanted to be very independent. And she wanted to be a leader. She wanted to lead other people, but she didn't want them to know what she was really like. And consequently, she was never able to grow out of what she was at that point in time. How is the body of Christ supposed to be different? We're supposed to have good, strong, healthy relationships. You are familiar with the one another verses in the New Testament? We're supposed to be loving one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, comforting one another, admonishing one another, teaching one another, building up one another. If you're in the kind of atmosphere, if you and I are, where we have the kind of relationships where those things are happening, with a mutuality, that I'm doing them and you're doing them, and we're that kind of support to each other, there can be real growth in our lives. And I think that's part of what discipleship is all about, is that iron sharpening iron, those kinds of relationships where we're building up each other. I'd like us to think about, um, for the marks of a maturing disciple, I'm going to give you only three, but I think they're incredibly important and very serious, and we'll spend a little bit of time on each one of them. Number one that I'd like to give you as a mark of a maturing disciple would be a, that the person is available; that they are available. Look with me, and you may think, "Well, this is a real strange verse. Where did she pull this out?" Um, John chapter three and verse twenty-two. John three twenty-two. Verse twenty-two. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there, what was he doing? He was spending time with them and baptizing. And it goes on. But I want to pull out just that little phrase. It's just a real simple little phrase, but I think it has a lot of meaning behind it. Jesus was spending time with his disciples on an ongoing period, on a regular basis. He's spending time with them. And you say, well, sure he was. He'd disciple them, and they met in these little groups, and they'd sit around in a circle, and he'd open up the scriptures or the scroll, and he would teach them the word of God. And I'm sure he did that. But you know what, if you think about through the New Testament and the span of the whole thing, there was a lot more that went on in terms of their spending time together than the fact that they sat in a circle and he opened up a scroll and he taught them the scriptures. You think about the time they were out in a boat in a storm. Think about the times that they interacted with different individuals or with the multitude, huge huge crowds. Think about they went to a wedding feast together. They traveled a lot together all over the countryside. They ate meals together. Lots of ways that you interact with people and that you spend time with them. And I think there were two things happening as Jesus spent time with his disciples. One was that in the process of spending time with those men and watching them and observing them, he learned about their needs and how he could minister to that need. What are the kinds of things that he learned about He saw periods of time of unbelief and a real lack of faith in their lives, Right. saw times of pride. He saw times of great fear. He saw their competition. You remember when they were arguing and debating among themselves about which one of them was the greatest? Jesus saw that. He saw the times when uh, they went through, I believe it was the Samaritan area and they weren't treated properly. And the disciples said, shall we call down fire from heaven and just destroy these people? And Jesus saw in that their need and their responses and how their attitudes needed to be changed. But not only did he see them, but they watched him and they saw his example. They watched him heal a leper. They saw him show love to a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They saw him deliver a demoniac who had been a slave to Satan for years. They saw him relate to Gentiles. And, you know, the Jews just hated the Gentiles and thought they were dogs and they were just beneath their feet. But Jesus interacted with a number of Gentiles and praised the kind of faith that they had. Remember when he said, even, you know, I haven't even met a Jew, an Israelite, who has the kind of faith that this Gentile has. And imagine how the disciples responded to that, because that's not what a Jewish rabbi is supposed to say. You know, it's like, what? You don't think the same way about Gentiles that we've always been brought up to think? Yeah, the that Jewish rabbis didn't talk to women? They didn't talk to women in public. Do you remember the time in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus was in conversation with her while the disciples went off to find some food? And since says the disciples came back and that little verse says, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. It shook up their cage kind of. It was like he was doing things differently than what they had always been taught. Okay, in our discipleship relationships, there's the same kind of thing going on. It's a little bit different because Jesus was perfect, and so the disciples didn't learn from his mistakes. But when we function as disciples, we make mistakes, and we sin too. And those people that we disciple get to watch us, and they see us fail in some of those ways. I want you to think for a minute about when you're involved in your discipleship, the kinds of things that you think about Jesus and his disciples. Uh, spending time together and what they learned by observing and being with each other and then think about in your own discipleship relationships what kinds of things you learn about each other that can be helpful in the discipleship relationship. A few years ago I was leading a group that I don't think we called it a discipleship group at that time. Um, it was part of the time it was kind of a bible study group part of the time it was kind of a prayer group but really more than anything else it was a discipleship kind of group except that it was a little bit larger than I would normally um, deal with a discipleship group at this point I think we had about six or seven girls in there at different points and we met together for a rather long time too it was about three years I think But in the process of most of the time that we spent together, we spent in somebody's living room, sitting around in a circle and with our Bibles out, and usually with me sharing some things or kind of teaching some things, or they're sharing different things with the group. But as we got out and began to spend time together with each other in different kinds of situations, that began to build our discipleship relationship, too. One time we went on a retreat with our group from the church, and we were going to play softball. And I really believe that there are times when, with athletics, when competition is appropriate. Uh, Cutthroat competition, you know? I think there are times when it's appropriate, and other times when it's not. Like with the girls on our great volleyball team here. It's like all of them, they're trained, and they've been coached. And when they get out there, they're on the floor to win, that's why they're there. And they're playing against a team that's been trained and coached. And that's what it's all about, is competition. But there are times when you get together and you have a game and it's supposed to be just for fun, you know, and not everybody's trained and coached. And you kind of encourage people to join in because, and they say, oh, I can't really hit the ball. You know, I can't catch a ball. I'll really blow it for you guys. And you say, oh, that's it's okay. It really doesn't matter. We're am out there at a We're just going to have a good time together. And you know that day down at the beach that we had our softball game, what I discovered about three of the girls in my discipleship group was they didn't know how to distinguish between when cutthroat competition was appropriate and when it wasn't. And that in that game, all kinds of things were being said to people who would drop a ball, or who would strike out. And comments were made that totally humiliated those people, and that they walked away feeling utterly rejected. And I learned some things about the girls I was working with that helped me then when we got back together in a circle in somebody's living room, and started talking about some things. I knew some things that they needed to be taught, and they needed to be encouraged about. But you know what? They learned some things about me too. And one of the things that they learned, uh, <clears throat> let me share with you, this was um, it was it not at all funny to me at the time. It is now looking back. But we had um, planned a birthday party for one of the girls in our group, and it was to be a surprise. And actually, this, taking her out to dinner was not a surprise, but we had a bunch of people, like 30 or so people, who were going to be at this house when we got back from dinner, and that was the big surprise. And we had cake and refreshments and all this stuff that we had planned. Well, the girl in the group had, there were only four of us who were going out to dinner together. And the girl in the group had decided that she wanted to go to this particular restaurant that none of us had ever been to before that's over here in the valley. And so we made those arrangements, and we set up with these 30 people to arrive after we had left and to be in this house, sitting in the dark, waiting for all of us to come back. And so we went to this really nice seafood restaurant, and... um, We asked the hostess, there seemed to be quite a number of people kind of standing around waiting to be seated. So we thought, well, maybe this was a mistake, maybe we shouldn't have come, but the hostess will know. So we went to ask the hostess, you know, how long a wait it would be, and she said, oh, about half an hour, it won't be very long at all. So we kind of stood around and we talked and we, you know, and we waited and, and half an hour came and it got to be a little after half an hour. And so one of us went back and, and said to her, um, well, it's been half an hour. You know, how much longer do you think it's going to be? And she said, oh, not long at all. Just a few more minutes. Maybe another 10 or 15 minutes at the very most. And so we said, oh, well, okay. And we're starting to look at our watches like, you know, those people are going to be arriving at that house and they're going to be kind of wondering what's happened to us. And so we waited. We're getting a little bit more impatient by this time. And so it gets to be an hour that we've waited, you know. And we go back and we ask her again. He said, she said, oh, it just won't be, you know, much time. And I'm really beginning to get irritated by this. And so it gets to be an hour and 15 minutes. And I'm getting more irritated. And realizing that these people have now been at the house sitting in the dark, thinking we're driving up at any moment. You know, they've been there quite a while. It gets to be an hour and a half. It gets to be an hour and 45 minutes. And when it was two hours, she came and got our little group of four to go and see us. Well, by this time, I was furious. And I'm not normally a real angry person at all, but I mean, I really the top was about to come off my head and I was starting to say things a little bit louder than normal about how obnoxious this woman was and what a stupid restaurant this was to where the girls I was discipling were starting to say shh somebody will hear you you know and by the time they seated us two hours later I was just about at the point where and again this you some of you don't know me well enough to know that this would is just totally uncharacteristic of me but I really wanted to stand up and lecture at this woman <laughs> so that everybody in the restaurant could hear what I had to say to her. I mean, I had just about, now I don't want you to think, I had not lost control to where we would alternate between being really irritated and laughing about the whole thing, you know? But deep inside, I was really irritated. Now, the thing that was neat about that, it was not neat that I was really getting angry and getting out of control, but the thing that was neat about it was I was working with this group of girls who, All of whom had come from some real difficult home lives and and really felt like they were not emotionally very stable and that they got angry a lot of time and they were out of control a lot of the time. And here they would come and they would sit in a little discipleship group with me. And I had come from a more stable home life and I was probably more emotionally stable than they were. But they kind of looked at me as somebody that's like, she's really got it all together, you know? I mean, she's so controlled and she just, you know, she always has the right response and she teaches us the word and it's kind of like, She's just always under control and I'm not that way and I just, you know, I don't guess I'll ever get to the point where I could be totally under control. And it was amazing how it helped them that night to see me out of control and to be able, it was almost like it broke down some barriers and that from that point on there was a little bit more freedom of sharing because they knew that I was one of them and I could lose control too. And two of those, two out of the three, I'm still friends with today. And you know, occasionally something will happen and the name of that restaurant will come up. And all somebody has to do is mention the name of that restaurant. And they just go off into gales of laughter about what a wonderful night it was that I just lost control and was going to just tear into this woman who was the hostess at the restaurant. And really, there are lots of similarities with those two kinds of situations and what we just talked about with Jesus and his disciples and the kind of time they spent together. They learned a lot about each other that you don't just learn when you sit down and open the Bible in this real formal setting and just talk to each other. They spent time together. That's one of the reasons why we encourage you, even when you get involved in the discipleship relationship, to do that with somebody who's at the same church that you are because you're gonna have more opportunities to spend time together and to observe each other and to see each other in all different kinds of situations. Okay, so that's point number one for the marks of a maturing disciple is that they would be available, that they would spend time together. Two Would be that the person be faithful, faithful. They have the idea that they would follow through with the commitments that they've made, that they're reliable, That they have a strong sense of responsibility. Think about Jesus. What kinds of things did he say to people? Did he say, um, it's easy to be my disciple? You don't have to do very much. Sometimes when we talk about discipleship relationships, somebody will say, well, you know, I'd really like you to disciple me, but I don't have a whole lot of time for this. How much are you going to ask of me? And that kind of gets intimidating to the person who may become the disciple And then they begin to say things like, Oh, well, yeah, I'll be glad to do this for you. And I won't ask very much. I mean, you wouldn't have to put in but maybe this little amount of time. And all of a sudden they're apologizing for even asking for a commitment. Do you ever notice that Jesus didn't do that? And that he said to the rich young ruler that he knew the man had a problem with his wealth and with his money. And he said to him, You need to sell everything that you have. That's what you need to do. And so the man went away sorrowfully. And you know what? I think most of us probably would have chased that man down and tried to lower the standard and persuade him to come back. And Jesus didn't do that. He didn't go after that man. And he talked about, unless you're willing to put me above your family, above your closest relationship, unless you're willing to put me first in your life, you can't be my disciple. Jesus put the standard really high. And again, that's a personal relationship with our Savior. And yet maybe there's some application in terms of discipleship relationship. But there needs to be some real commitment involved. <clears throat> maybe things like the time that you set to get together, being real faithful in your attendance to that time. Being faithful to be on time when you get together. Being faithful to be prepared and to have the assignment that you've been given by your disciples. I think there may be times that when you make a commitment to a discipleship relationship that somebody's going to come along and say, Hey, let's go to the movie tonight. Or let's go down to penguins and see everybody. And you may have to say, You know what? I made this commitment to this discipleship relationship and I've kind of put off my assignment for the whole week. And we're getting together tomorrow. And tonight's my only opportunity to do that work that I committed myself to do. I just really can't go. And you may even have people make fun of you for that. But there's a a commitment involved. There's a sacrifice. Um, Howard Hendricks, who's a professor at Dallas Seminary, tells on one of his tapes about a group of guys who came and kept saying, We want to be discipled by you. We want to meet with you. And he really didn't think they were serious and that they were really committed. And so to try to get them off his back, I forget if it was 5 or 5.30 in the morning that he said it's their time to get together. And those men kind of swallowed hard and said, okay, we'll be there. And he met with them for something like a year or a year or two that they met every time they met at like 5 or 5.30 in the morning that he tested their commitment to that discipleship. I think that disciples or people who are about to become disciples need to look for signs of faithfulness in the person that you're praying about whether or not you're going to disciple, whether the person is willing to make that kind of commitment. A few years ago, um, one of the girls that I was working with over um, at Grace Community had made this commitment, that she had pleaded with me to disciple her and then had made this commitment. And we had gotten together maybe three or four times when it came down to the day that I was going to meet with her that afternoon. Meet with her that afternoon. And I had... um, I had come to the place of putting off for the whole week and feeling like I was so busy that I didn't have the time to prepare. And that afternoon I had like an hour before she got there that there was something else that I just felt like I really needed to do. And if I didn't do it right then, I was going to be up later that night than I wanted to because I had to have it ready for the next morning. And it was either do that or spend that hour preparing for her. I remember sitting there making that decision and saying, Okay, I've made a commitment to her. I cannot fail to be faithful to her if I've asked her to be faithful. I have to, even though it's going to change my whole life around, I have to spend this hour getting ready for her, and that's what I did. I put the other thing aside. And she arrived an hour later, and then she walked into my office, and I said, well, you know, where are your notes and stuff? And she said, you just wouldn't believe the week I've had. She said, I haven't had time always." She said, I haven't done a thing. And she flopped down in the chair. And I said, we need to talk about this. And I told her what had happened that afternoon. And the choice that I had had to make. And I said, we have to examine this thing. Because I said, you know, you're the one who came and sought me for discipleship. You were the one who was eager to make a commitment. And I've made a commitment to you. And I spent that hour preparing for you instead of doing something else that was very crucial to me. And I said, I want you to know that I don't want this to ever happen again. Unless there's a real emergency. If somebody dies in your family, okay. But and I don't want you to ever come back in here again to meet with me for our discipleship time that you haven't done what it is that you tell me you would fulfill for that week. I said, if you come to that morning of that day that we're going to meet and you haven't done it, you call me and we're going to cancel our time of getting together. I'm not going to get together with you every week just for chit um, chat even though I enjoy that with you, because we've made a commitment to do something else in this relationship. And I said, if that happens a couple of times where you haven't done it and we have to cancel our meeting time, we'll cancel the discipleship too. I'll be your friend and I'll love you and I'll see you around and get together with you occasionally. But I will not be committed to a discipleship relationship with you if you are not committed to putting time into it and to fulfilling your part in that responsibility. And you know what? That was one of the best things I ever did for that girl. Because one of the biggest things that she struggled with in her life was personal discipline. And she had never been disciplined to follow through on anything and you know what i don't think there was in spending a lot of time with her over a period of time i don't think there was but maybe one other time that she had a problem and she called me that morning and we canceled the time and didn't get together but she became very very faithful in fulfilling that responsibility of what we had committed together to do discipleship is a commitment And I think that the disciple has a responsibility to break it off if no commitment is there. Okay, we're talking about the person being disciple. that they would be, first of all, available to really spend quality time with their disciple. Secondly, that they would be faithful, a really committed person. And then the third thing I want to give you is that they would be teachable. That they would be teachable. How does a teachable spirit show itself? probably lots of different ways. I just want to mention three for you. Number one, I would say is that the person is really seeking to grow. They're seeking instruction. They're asking for it. Do you remember when the disciples heard Jesus pray one time? And after listening to him pray, they knew that their prayers weren't anything like his. And you remember what they said? Lord, would you teach us to pray? And he taught them the Lord's prayer at that time. Being willing to seek to be taught, to seek instruction. I told you about the girls the other day who came looking for discipleship who said, I need somebody to hold me accountable. I need somebody to teach me in several areas of my life. <clears throat> the second thing, and I think this may be the hardest one for all of us that shows a teachable spirit, would be willing to accept correction. To be willing to accept correction. Have you ever thought about what it might have been like to be Peter when Jesus said, turned and looked at you and said, Get thee behind me, Satan? Um, there's a passage in um, Luke 9, 52 to 55. Why don't we look there for just a second? Luke chapter 9, verses 52 to 55. Jesus sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him, because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume these people? And what does verse 55 say? But he turned and he rebuked them. They were wrong. Their attitude was wrong. And Jesus rebuked them. How do you take rebuke? How do you take correction? From the Lord or from somebody else? You know, when I think about this, the illustration that is stuck in my mind um, <clears throat> was the family that I lived with for a period of time. Somebody was telling me the other day that you know, a few students had asked about where my husband was. So if some of you are not aware that I'm single, this would be a good time for me to let you know that, that I'm single and I've not ever been married. But I have lived for a number of years with a family, a couple about my age, and they have two kids, and I've been a part of that, that family for just, I feel like I am part of the family and help raising the kids for a period of time. And when Matt was about, I don't know, I forget the ages when kids do different things, but I think it was somewhere around, two, where he was starting to get real independent and want to start learning to do things for himself. And I had the kids one night and I was putting them to bed and I was trying to help him get ready for bed and I took out his pajamas the way I normally would and started helping him put them on and all of a sudden he pulled the pants away from me and he said, um, no help. I do it. And so, you know, he starts trying to put on the legs of the pajamas and all of a sudden I realized that he's just pulling as hard as he can, that he's got both legs in one side of the pajama bottom, you know. And so I'm I'm watching this and I said, um, ma'am, why don't you let me help you with that? No help. I do it and so i'm watching him wrestle and i realized i'm trying to figure out what's going to happen first you know either he's going to rip out the leg of the pajamas or he's going to lose his balance and fall off on the floor so i kept saying matthew i don't think it's going to work that way but i could help you no help so you know he wrestled and finally he lost his balance and he fell off in the teeth in the floor and from down there on the floor looking up you know he looked up at me with these big eyes and says would you help me And you know what stuck in my mind about that was I thought how often it must be almost like our relationship with the Lord. I wonder how often I'm struggling with something like that. And it's almost like the Lord is tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Betty, it's not going to work that way. I could help you with that. And I'm saying, no, Lord, I've got my way of doing this. You know, I I can take care of this, Lord. I can do it. And he's saying, Betty, I have a bigger perspective than you do. And I can see it's not going to work this way. And I'm saying, no, Lord, I don't need any help. And yet, for a lot of us, when it comes to the, if it's the Lord tapping us on the shoulder, we really could respond to that. But when it's a friend tapping us on the shoulder and saying, you know, I think you're making a big mistake, would you be willing to let me give you some input or share with you a different way of doing that, a way that might help you? And what's our response at that point? Um, usually it's not quite so good as if it was the Lord that was talking to us. I think discipleship means that we need to be able to have a, a willingness to share our weaknesses with the people that we're working with. The person being disciple needs to be willing to admit, I have some struggles in this area, and I really need some growth. It needs to involve a willingness to repent and to change, to be willing to be corrected. Let me share with you real quickly two examples that went two totally different ways in terms of how people respond to corrections. Some time ago at a retreat with a singles group from Grace Community with the Career Department, Um, We were out at where, um, I think, probably a lot of you who are new students went to Paradise Springs during WOW Week, and we were out there for a retreat. And we just had a great weekend, and there was one girl in the group who had, it was summertime, and one girl in the group who had worn a bathing suit that weekend that was just cut way down the front and was just totally inappropriate. But she wore it all weekend. They had this huge fling tool out there that you probably saw. And at one point, they had a, um, a group meetings where they divided up like we are today with all the guys in one meeting and all the girls in one meeting. And this bathing suit was so bad that it became the topic of conversation in the men's meeting, where all of the guys were together talking about what, what needed to be done about this girl in the bathing suit. So as the guy who was the pastor of the career department at that time, as he and his wife left because they had to rush down for him to do a funeral, his wife came over to me and said, it was going to be my responsibility to talk to this girl about her bathing suit, But we have to leave very suddenly. So guess what? We'd like you to talk to this girl today before you all leave and talk to her about her baby's suit." And, man, I just hated having to do that. I didn't even know her hardly. I mean, I think I had just met her that weekend. And that was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. But I prayed about it and swallowed real hard and went to talk to her and just said, you know, you need to know that there's been a problem with your bathing suit this weekend. You know what her response was? She said, said, I'm so glad you told me. She said, I'm so embarrassed. And and she said, you know, I was choosing when I left for the weekend of packing, I was choosing between that and another bathing suit that really would have been more modest. And I can just see where I really made the wrong choice. And she said, I'm really sorry that I created a problem this weekend. And you know what was neat was that I got to know that girl over a period of two or three years after that and to watch her life. And she grew and she grew. It was incredible, her study of the scriptures and her commitment to being obedient and her service in a Bible study. She took a Greek class and study and all sorts of things with the Greek and the Bible. She um, was eventually made a deaconess in the career department at Grace. And it was just the most exciting thing to have had that personal experience with her, even though I hated doing it at the time, to say, hey, there's a problem here. But to see her respond and to see the result of that grow. The thing that I always contrast with that was that um, somewhere probably a little bit later after that, I had a friend, a woman who, again, appeared to make a commitment to Christ and appeared to want to be involved in Bible studies for a while. And... um, but it was kind of that she she never wanted to get baptized. And even over a period of a, a year or two of kind of claiming to be a Christian, and, and, um, but we really n- never did see a lot of evidence of it, she was just too afraid to get up in front of other people. And she never wanted to make a commitment to be baptized. And then I was leading a Bible study with her and another woman for a while. And uh, I encouraged her to learn to pray with us. And her response was, oh, no, I could never pray in front of anybody else. And I said, but but this is going to be part of life as a Christian, and and we'll give you some time, and we won't rush you, but we want you to learn how to talk with the Lord, and we want you to learn how to do that in fellowship with other people, and what better place to learn than with two close friends, and it'll be as comfortable as it could possibly be for you. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. And she never would do it. And over a period of time, her marriage got worse and worse, and there were more and more struggles. Her husband was a cameraman in the... Film industry, and at one point he was going off to South America to do some filming. And she decided that because her marriage was going so badly, that there had been this guy who had been kind of her um, uh, boyfriend back in high school, and they had been separated. And she had suddenly found out where he was, that he was on the East Coast, and that maybe he could still be her knight in shining armor. And so she had decided that while her husband was out of the country, that she would make a trip back to the East Coast and visit this guy. And she had convinced herself that if there was no physical adultery involved in that relationship, then it would be fine with the Lord for her to go and do that. <clears throat> she had input from several other Christian women saying, it's not okay for you to do that. But it came down to, I got a message one day at my office at the church that she had made plane reservations and she was leaving that afternoon. And I don't recommend having those kinds of conversations with people over the telephone. I think they need to be face to face. But there was no way at that point, if she was leaving by 4 o'clock, that I could even get in my car and be home by the time to be able to talk to her. So I called her and I talked to her on the phone. And I just said, I just feel like you're a friend and I love you and I have responsibility to you to tell you that you're doing a very dangerous thing. And that God would not look lightly on you're in the midst of a marriage commitment. You're pursuing a relationship with somebody else. You need to realize what a serious thing you're doing. And her response was with utter fury coming over the phone. I'm sick and tired of having church people tell me what to do. I don't need your advice. I don't need to know what you think is wrong with what I'm going to do. And before the conversation was over, both of us were in tears and um, she would have nothing to do with anything that I recommended to her and she went off to visit this guy and within a year or two later she had divorced her husband and had moved in and was living with some guy who was not a Christian and within a period of time after that, was living a totally worldly life and not even, um, speaking of even being related to the Lord at all, was not attending church anymore, no evidence at all that her life had ever really changed and that she was a believer. That contrast has always stuck in my mind of the girl who I talked to about the bathing suit and who at that point could have very easily said, you know, who are you to come talk to me about my bathing suit? I don't even know who you are. Who do you think you are to tell me this? But her response is totally different. And she grew in the Lord. And she's a beautiful young married woman with her own kids today. And then this other woman who just with all the anger and the bitterness just totally shut me off. And her life is in a real mess today. Just utter disaster. So being willing to be teachable. To seek instruction and to be willing to accept correction. Let's pray together.